those days, we responded to bank robberies and actually went into the bank. Now, these are plain clothes officers that went in there, and we had a description of what the person looked like, and the officer went up to him to confront him and, and, and tragically was killed. Um, what we found out later was that this was the 10th bank robbery this person had done, and this was going to be his last bank robbery, and then he was going to sail off to Mexico on his boat that he had. City streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. Hey, welcome to a thread of evidence on America Out Loud. Today we have with us forensic investigator and homicide expert Bob Prevo, who's a member of our forensic death investigations team. You've been a, not only a homicide investigator, but you actually managed a homicide unit in uh, one of the major law enforcement areas uh, in, uh, in the state of California. And you've done your whole career uh, as a detective, and now you find yourself selected on our forensic death investigations team. Was that a paradigm shift for you? It certainly was. Uh, it's a totally different way of looking at cases, and you're in a different arena, the civil end of it versus the criminal end of it, so it uh, presents a lot of challenges. Well, you know, we also work criminal cases, but you know, our, our situation, as you well know, is pretty much what we get are cold cases. In other words, we're no longer on shooting teams like we used to be when we were on the job. Now a case happens maybe six months uh, in the past, going up to several years in the past. It could be multiple years in the past. And so now a lot of our evidence is gone or misplaced or destroyed, and we're asked to come back in and to reconstruct that. What's that like for you? Well, it's not only difficult in that, you know, witnesses have, have come and gone, uh, evidence may or may not be there. Um, you don't have the advantage of going back and re-interviewing, uh, you know, these types of things. So it's a, it's, it's a totally, it's a totally different uh, shift for you. And you, you've got to put all the pieces back together. And also you have to put yourself in the mindset of, you know, some of these cases go back many years and you have to put yourself in the mindset of, what was it like? What was police work like in, in when this case occurred? For example, uh, some cases back in the 80s, for example, we didn't have DNA. And so that type of evidence wasn't available. And you can't look at it with what we know now. You have to look at it in terms of what we knew then and what was available then for resources. Sure. So let's talk about putting ourselves in the officers' minds. So I'm going to take you back to Cleveland, Ohio, and officers get a call of an in-progress, agitated and chaotic individual who is walking around in circles on the street. He's armed with a long machete. This takes place in daytime. Three officers initially respond to the scene, and upon their arrival, uh, as I recall, the guy is sitting down in the street with the machete. 
And as the officers get out of their cars and begin the process of de-escalation, the agitated man stands up, threatens the officers with the machete. More officers arrive. They triangulate on the suspect. Tasers are deployed, but they're not very effective. Then, from out of nowhere, the suspect's sister arrives, moves through the police ranks before they can stop her, and gets within a deadly distance of the suspect, who suddenly raises his arm with the machete as if he's going to come back to her, and the officers need to make a nanosecond life-and-death decision, and they end up using deadly force. Multiple rounds are shot. The suspect is down. And now there is a lawsuit because the officers have fired upon a civilian, even though he's armed and actually saved a life. But now the family wants to get paid. And so they sit the sue the city of Cleveland and our forensic death investigations team is called in and you're one of those members. Bob, take us through those protocols. Well, Ron, this case is not unusual. Um, you know, we, we get these types of uh, civil suits involving a, a shooting like this. Uh, you know, you'll hear things like, well, they, they could have wounded him. They could have uh, uh, talked to him more. And, you know, under Graham versus Connor, which is a, a Supreme Court decision, uh, it kind of guides officers through what kind of objectively reasonable force they can use. And in this case, we looked at it very closely. The, uh, the shooting was investigated by the department. It was investigated by the uh, prosecutor's office. Uh, they had an investigation team. And it was found that the, the shooting was just, justified. And in this case, uh, what we looked at was, uh, you know, the disadvantage a patrol officer has is when they come to a scene, they don't know anything about the person. This person may have had a total mental breakdown. It could have been a, a drug influence type of a problem, uh, alcohol. We don't, we don't know when you get there. So, uh, you just have to do the best you can. And in this case, they tried to taser this person, I think, about six times, and none of the tasers seemed to be effective. And it's not unusual. Uh, many times the tasers are not effective, especially if the person's under the influence of something or uh, just doesn't feel the pain or the taser doesn't work right. And I think statistically about 30 40 percent of the time, the tasers just don't work. So we looked at this case from the point of, there was a shooting justified where the policies and procedures uh, followed for the department or was case law followed. And then we looked at the tasers themselves and we looked at the condition of the tasers because it seemed unusual that none of them were affected. And what we found out by looking at their records and everything was that the tasers were not being maintained. Uh, they used to have a maintenance contract and, and apparently they canceled it. And so at this point we, we were not able to, uh, say for certain how well these taser these tasers were maintained for use, and that of course uh, leaves you open for a certain amount of liability. So these are the things we looked at. That when when I was a police officer and I worked homicide, these are things you probably wouldn't be involved in looking at uh, for a criminal investigation, but in a civil investigation you are. Right. And, and Bob, let me chime in for a second uh, just to handle a, a few technical and legal issues for our listeners and our new forensic uh, team members. And that is, you know, an officer's uh, shooting 
uh, can be and always is investigated by several different bodies. And uh, in a case where an officer's use of force, including deadly force, is deemed by the district attorney or the county prosecutor to have been objectively reasonable and no criminal charges are filed, that doesn't mean that the officer or his agency are off the hook because the estate or the surviving relatives of the decedent can file uh, civil suits uh, alleging violations of uh, civil rights in both state court and also federal court. And so not only is our team called in to reassess independent review criminal situations, but most of our work, as you indicated, is actually done on the civil side, both at the state and federal levels. That's number one. Number two, you're absolutely accurate when you say that, that tasers aren't always effective. As a matter of fact, as, as a taser instructor and also as a researcher uh, who's done independent international research on the psychological and physiological effects on, on the human body uh, from uh, electronic energy conducted weapons, that's what a taser is, I've only found them to be about 60% effective. So, you know what, when you're an officer and a guy is armed with a machete and he's about to kill you or someone else, four out of six, those aren't that great odds, are they? No, it's uh, and it's uh, amazing. I never knew that figure uh, until I really got into this part of the uh, investigation team that they're not all that reliable. And uh, in, this, in this case in Cleveland, for example, as, as much as the officers tried to use non-lethal force, it just didn't work. And uh, that's when you start going, people need to realize that when, when I do an investigation like this, and you, even the other side, in this case I'm representing the city, but people representing the plaintiffs, they are going to get access to all the officer's records, training records, internal affairs records, and everything that you've ever done is going to be exposed. We'll, we're going to get your emails. We're going to get everything you've done about this case and, and your prior part of your career, and it's all going to come out. And uh, this is why we tell departments, be very careful how you write your policies and procedures, be very careful how you discipline or how you don't discipline, be very careful about how you do training, uh, you know, make sure you comply with all the state laws. You know, and that's so important. Uh, you know, Bob, uh, in, for our listeners and our team members, uh, Bob also managed an internal affairs unit after he had managed a homicide unit. So just uh, for the people that are listening in today, when there is an officer-involved shooting or an in-custody death or some sort of major use of force, the investigators conduct what is referred to, actually the agency conducts it, but they, the agency of the involved officer conducts what's referred to as a bifurcated investigation, B-I-F-U-R-C-A-T-E-D investigation. And bifurcated means they look at it from two different angles of view. One is going to be whether the officer violated any criminal or federal statutes. Okay, so criminally, is he going to be prosecuted for that? The second part is disciplinarily. So whether it's called the Internal Affairs Unit, the Bureau of Professional Standards, whatever, that team, which is a totally separate team, 
then the Homicide Investigations Unit officer-involved shooting team, the IA team, is going to look at it in terms of whether the officer followed policy, procedure, and their training. Both bodies put together independent reports that are reviewed by prosecutors and the agency head. That's correct, Ron. And depending on where you are, what state you're in, um, you know, sometimes the state attorney general's office will look at these and, and, and uh, do an investigation and file a report. So there's going to be multiple agencies looking at, at what you did. Uh, as an example, I just completed an investigation not too long ago that involved an officer-involved shooting where the officer uh, was justified in, in uh, using deadly force. He was, he was being attacked. He, uh, the case was reviewed uh, not only by the city but by the state and uh, found that he complied with everything, except there was one problem. Uh, the shooting occurred outside his primary jurisdiction in that, in that particular state. When you leave your primary jurisdiction, you are no longer considered a peace officer. Now, most states, you can go anywhere in the state and, you're, and you, you have the same amount of peace officer uh, power. In this particular case, he didn't. And what he should have done was call that local agency before he went out and confronted this person and, and, had, and had this uh, tragic outcome. So, uh, again, you know, we were looking at this from different points of view now versus what we used to do in, in, uh, as, as far as police officers. What he did was justified, but, but uh, it turns out that procedurally he, he did not follow state law and his, and his local uh, jurisdiction policies and procedures. Sure, and that can be a problem for the officer and the agency, particularly the officer, because if you go outside in that particular state, if you go outside the jurisdictional boundaries of your city or your county and then get involved uh, in continued enforcement action, you've lost the protections that are afforded by the courts to peace officers. And now you actually revert to civilian status. So... Uh, in an officer-involved shooting like that, Bob, guys like you and me would not only look at it from a police practices standpoint, but now we have to look at it in terms of civilian self-defense law, right? That's correct. And 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 in this particular case, uh, you know, did the officer have a right to pat search the person? Did the officer have the right to even approach him on on the uh, on his private property? These are all issues that would not be an issue in his primary jurisdiction, but as soon as he stepped out of it, now we're talking about these things that come up. And you know, I hope officers that are listening to this program uh, from various jurisdictions, uh, you know, keep that in mind. You know, you don't want to be forgetful uh, of, of where you're doing your enforcement action. And you know, those things are easily remedied. If you uh, lose your jurisdictional uh, protections and you go to another city, uh, simply making a, a call or having a supervisor call to that jurisdiction, uh, you might be able to extend your protections through posse comitatus. That, that's correct, and that's you know what should have happened here. And you know, let's face it, especially when you're working homicide, you're a detective. You may go all over the state to interview people, and and uh, you know, some states you have to be very careful about how you do that. You know, do you need to call a local jurisdiction and have them come out with you? 
And, you know, these are all things that should be set out in your policies and procedures on how you do things. And, and, and that's also the case with respect to officer-involved shooting teams. Uh, it's so important, Bob, as, as you and I know, and we have also learned when we analyze uh, the officer-involved shooting investigations from various jurisdictions across the nation, that uh, most agencies have a specific protocol for the investigation of officer-involved shootings, but other agencies have a mediocre or they even have a poor response protocol. That's correct. In, in, in some states, uh, you know, I'll go in and look at their policies and procedures. They haven't been updated in 10 or 15 years. And, uh, you know, you start asking questions, uh, and the usual answer I get is, well, we, we, we meant to do this, we want to do that. And, and you know, most, most places are understaffed, they're under budget, you know, they're over budget. Uh, they don't have the resources to do it. It costs money to have consultants come in and do this type of stuff or get accredited. And it just it gets put off and it gets put off. And pretty soon you're, you're sitting in a civil rights case and you don't really have anything to show. And, you know, you're exactly right, because the court specifically in several case laws that I can think of uh, specifically mandate the agencies to have a certain amount of training. And it not only has to be book learning or lecture training, but it also has to have a practical aspect where the officers are tested for their uh, physical competency or their practical competency in in all of the different subject matters uh, that that officers have to learn about. You know, just very briefly, as as a former police academy director, I will tell you that uh, the public should know that police academies are actually like many colleges. Uh, in in the state of California, for instance, there are. 43 different subjects, which we refer to as learning domains, that officers have to demonstrate competency at the 80 to 100 percent level. That's right, 100 percent. You can't miss anything. And if you, you only get one more chance to make up that exam, and if you fail that exam, and it could be a 100 percentile uh, competency rate, you're out of the academy and you're out of the job. That's correct. And not only that, uh, we found when we started our original field training officer programs that were state certified. In other words, we had to go to school and, and become certified as field training officers. We were failing about almost 50 percent of the people after they had graduated from the police academy because they couldn't make it through the field training officer program. You can't you can't grade and judge common sense and, and, and other things in the police academy until they actually get out in the street and start working. And if they, if they can't do those domains out there, they're not going to make it through. Well, you know, and that's exactly right. And that just really pushes forward uh, an important thing to remember, that police academies are stressful environments where you have to produce. You know, you can't sit in the back of a, uh, of a classroom like you do in a Psych 101 class and, uh, you know, get, get, get a B grade and really not produce. We are talking about um, stress induced into the situation. Uh, officers, you mentioned the field training program. You and I have both been not only field training officers, but field training supervisors. And, uh, you know, those officers get what we refer to as DORs or daily observation reports in up to over 33 different police practices every single day that they're in that program. Correct. And, and just as an example, I had a case uh, back east where, again, we are going to see all of your training files. We are going to see all of your daily observation reports. We're going to see everything. And 
this officer uh, was sued after a, a encounter with a suspect and going through all of his training records and his uh, daily activity or daily observation reports, it was obvious that this person should never have completed the field training officer program because he was failing. But here you had a, uh, an agency where they were having problems recruiting, they were low paid, and they did not really want to uh, terminate anybody because they needed the personnel. And this, this is a person that they, you know, they put him through the uh, program and they passed him and they probably shouldn't have. And now he's out on the street. So, you got to look at you got to look at the long term effect here of what you're doing. You know that's exactly right. Hey, when we come back from this break, uh, Bob and I are going to talk about how the evidence identification, collection, preservation, and analysis functions have changed over the years. You're listening to a thread of evidence on America Out Loud. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com For a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. talk about a bank robbery that occurred some years ago where a person named uh, Raleigh Porsche went into a bank uh, to, uh, to rob it. He was armed and the bank alarm went off in the uh, police station and the officers responded. The officer went into the bank and uh, approached uh, Mr. Porsche and guns were drawn and unfortunately and tragically our officer was killed by gunfire. And before uh, Mr. Porsche could get out of the bank, uh, other officers came in and uh, shot and killed Mr. Porsche, uh, which ended the ended the uh, ended the ended the robbery. What we did after that, of course, is we spent many, many, many weeks putting this together, doing a background on Mr. Porsche, why this happened, what happened, and how we could prevent it from happening again. And in this case, um, in those days, we responded to bank robberies and actually went into the bank. Now, these are plainclothes officers that went in there, and we had a description of what the person looked like, and the officer went up to him to confront him and then and tragically was killed. Um, what we found out later was that this was the 10th bank robbery this person had done 
And this was going to be his last bank robbery, and then he was going to sail off to Mexico on his boat that he had. So the mindset at that moment was this guy was just looking for the exit door to get out. So what did we do after that? We looked at how we did things, and we looked at why did the officer confront him? What did the officer do? Why do we even go into banks during a bank robbery? And this was many years ago. We don't do that anymore. We changed our policy so that we wait till the person comes out, and we train bank uh, personnel to lock the door behind them so that when the person's outside, we'll deal with them. But here's what we found out that was very interesting. Uh, the officer involved in this case uh, had just bought a new holster, one of these uh, uh, shoulder holsters, and uh, he recently got it. I don't think he'd been trained on how to use it. It wasn't something uh, that he had trained for before, which is, you know, we all carry them in our waist. And we, we feel that he probably had trouble getting that gun out in time to actually be effective, and, and which, is, which is a tragedy. So. We looked at our policies and procedures. What do we allow officers to carry? And if we do allow them to carry something, how much training do we do we give them? And these are all important things that came out of that. And the fact that we don't even allow officers to go in during a bank robbery, you know, we want to avoid a hostage situation. We want to get them outside where it's easier to confront this person. It's safer for everybody. And these are the things we look at after a case when we uh, when, when we look at what happened and we try and improve on what we're doing. This is a good example of what we did. And I spent the next probably six months to a year going around different conferences and agencies and explaining to them what happened and why it happened in the hopes that we, you know, we change the way we do business. And I think you'll find mostly nationwide now that officers do not go into banks during a bank robbery. Uh, even if you're playing close, you wait outside and you wait for the person to come out. And, you know, uh, the way we collect evidence is completely different uh, now, even as opposed to 10 or 15 years ago, because we have such technological advancements now. Uh, you know, our recorded media now is totally different. Uh, we didn't have body cameras. We didn't have dash cameras. Uh, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, most of us uh, had, uh, you know, tape recorders, uh, you know, on our belts or uh, if we were detectives uh, in a shirt pocket or something like that. Uh, the way we collect, uh, you know, now we've got DNA evidence. Uh, where before uh, we were using serology, and maybe, Bob, you can, you can talk about that. The, the ways that we conduct interviews even are, uh, are changing. Uh, before we would just do a, just a regular interview. Now we have cognitive behavioral interviews. We have four-part interviews. We have kinesic interviews where we're even evaluating language and body behavior. So, Bob, could you talk a little bit about that? Can we start maybe with serology and, and uh, with the newer uh, listeners uh, and team members? They're probably not even familiar with that with that word. Can you discuss the difference between the serology and the DNA now? Sure. Um Back before, well, in the 80s and prior to that, um, you know, we, when we did investigations, and primarily sexual assault and homicide investigations, um, your, your, your primary source of evidence would be the sexual assault examination kit, which would, when analyzed, would give you a blood type of the, uh, uh, from the semen of the person who committed the crime. And in those days, what we would get is a, is a blood type, and if the person was a secretor or a non-secretor, and that's that's just the two categories. And 
that's basically what we had to work with. And we didn't have DNA. We didn't have uh, a lot of the specialized things we had now. But what we mainly didn't have was the training we have now and the specialized units. Everybody watches CSI. That kind of stuff didn't exist back then. And officers just kind of learn on the job, learn by doing. Um, there was some training, but not a lot. Uh, until about oh, maybe around 1980, they started having uh, field evidence technician uh, classes that were, I went to one that was three weeks long, where I, you, you learn a lot about uh, fingerprint comparisons, uh, blood collection, um, you know, evidence handling. And it wasn't until that point uh, when the state came up with these classes that it was really specialized enough uh, where we could actually do something with it. So we've come a long way. And now, of course, you know, uh, medium and large departments have people who are just, that's all they do. They're crime scene uh, technicians, they're CSI type, uh, and that's all they do is come out and collect evidence. And if you're fortunate enough to have a crime lab where you could have a person come out and do these things, uh, do fingerprinting, for example, and, and uh, collect blood, you were very fortunate. But there's a lot of parts of this country that didn't have that type of access. And, and, and you know, there, there's still parts of this country where they don't. And, uh, you no. know, for, for our listeners and team members and those people that are interested in the amazing field of forensic investigations, I mean, you don't have to watch CSI on TV. You can literally these days, as a civilian, become CSI. And uh, there is an increased... Uh, emphasis on the civilianization of, uh, of forensic specialties. And so, you know, we can uh, bring in uh, blood spatter experts now, uh, obviously fingerprint experts. Um, we do photographic uh, experts, video experts. Uh, there is just a uh, evidence collection, as you said, experts. There are just uh, amazing fields that are opening up uh, to civilians. And, and one of the reasons is, is because agencies are having a hard time affording uh, and training police officers to do that because they have pensions, they have benefits, uh, where civilians, they, they come in on a, on a contract basis. You know, the next thing that I think is remarkable as uh, from the old days uh, is now they have entire um, crime scene uh, vehicles that roll out. I mean, giant converted uh, you know, 40, uh, 40 foot, uh, RVs, uh, that come out that are just stocked with all different types of, uh, forensic investigations, uh, equipment, uh, evidence collection. We have lighting, we have drones now, uh, even our firm, uh, uses a drone, uh, to, to reassess crime scenes. I mean, we have the we have the Forbis uh, and Leica 360 machines, which are laser uh, measuring devices that will literally measure millions of points where evidence uh, is found and uh, the entire uh, scope of the crime scene and can reconstitute uh, that in 3D. We didn't have any. We had a we had a roll of tape. Uh, we had a tape measure, and uh, we had Polaroid cameras. And yeah, I mean, we have just you know seen some amazing uh, changes in forensic investigations. Yeah, and, and the point of all that is, as a homicide investigator, part of your job is to know the resources available. And for example, I, I was telling you about the three week evidence tech school I went to. That was conducted at a state college, and. 
as an investigator, you need to know where you can find answers. And, you know, the answers are a lot of times outside your own agency. Um, you need to know your crime lab people. You need to know what they can do, what their capabilities are, your local universities. Um, in California out here, we're near Silicon Valley. There are a lot of companies down there that do very specialized types of things that can give you answers, and they'll work with you. And you don't need to, you know, we have the FBI lab. Uh, you can send things back there for free, and uh, and, and they have wonderful resources. But you, you're not going to get them unless you know about them. And, and that's part of your job is to know where they are and then use them. You know, that, that's exactly right. I remember when I was directing uh, one of the state's police academies on campus, we had one of the, the state's uh, drug labs uh, right on campus. And, of course, uh, you always saw uh, detective vehicles and police cars, uh, you know, parked in, in front of that. So, I mean, we've really made some amazing changes. And, uh, you know, listen, for those people, and I'll say this a couple of times but uh, during the course of the show, but for those people that are interested in new careers uh, as civilians uh, in forensics and forensic investigations, please contact me uh, at my email address at drron, D-R-R-O-N, at America Out Loud. And I will absolutely fill you in on some tips. You do not need to be a police officer or a detective anymore to get involved in forensics and forensic investigations. And that's correct. And I, you know, I taught at the undergraduate level for four years uh, following my retirement. And a lot of the students uh, were interested in, you know, CSI had just come out on TV and it was a, uh, it, it was a big deal. And they all wanted to be CSI. Uh, agents and I said, well, then why are you in a uh, you know administration of justice program? Do you want to be a police officer or do you want to be a, a crime scene person? And you know, I'd sit down with a lot of these folks and say, if, if this is your path and it's a it's a great way to go, then I might stir you down the hall to to that program uh, rather than the program that you're in and 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 get them on the right trail. A lot of people they love this stuff, but they don't really they're not they're not interested in going out and, and you know driving a patrol car, for example. Right, or so, chasing crooks down. Or chasing crooks down. So, so you need to spend time with these folks and, and figure out what path they want to go down because the, the, the opportunities out there right now are just amazing. I mean, exactly right. I mean, you know, if, if you are a person uh, that's got a microbiology uh, major, you've got a chemistry major, you've got a physics major, maybe you're in... Uh, in uh, the pre-med, uh, studying kinesiology or physiology. Um, there are all sorts of um, opportunities for you. Uh, let's let's just say you're. You know, I don't want to use. Don't mean to use the uh, expression. Uh, you know, negatively, but you're, if you're kind of geeky, right. And you're, and you're a person uh, that loves, uh, you know, working, uh, you know, social media or working the internet, or maybe you like flying drones around and you have your own drone. Uh, believe me, those are marketable skills these days, uh, in, uh, in the forensic, uh, investigations in the forensic fields. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's something out there for everyone. And whether you want to work at a local state or federal level, that's, you know, that's depending on your personal life, where you want to live, what you want to do. There, there, there's an opportunity out there for you. And no matter what crime lab you end up in, or, or even if you're working for a private company doing DNA, if that, you know, if that's your, uh, uh, that's your path you want to take. These are great opportunities, and you will be working with police officers, especially people working major crimes, because 
that they're your partner and, and you and them are going to have to team up together to present evidence to a prosecutor to, to uh, get a prosecution. And remember the standard, you know, uh, my standard of arrest is probable cause. My standard for a search warrant is probable cause. The standard for a prosecutor is, uh, you know, uh, guilty beyond uh, a reasonable doubt. Well, guilty beyond a reasonable doubt and moral certainty. So these people are, are on a different playing uh, pattern than I am. And I have to, once I arrest the person, I have probable cause. Now I've got it. Now my case starts. Now I've got to deal with the prosecutor who's got a much different standard to get a conviction. And we have to put together the case. And that, that involves crime labs, evidence technicians, uh, private companies to put these uh, cases together to hand it to the prosecutor and say, you know, do we have enough for a uh, uh, conviction? Uh, and that's, that's what we're going for. Yeah, and you know, let me chime in here for a second, because one of the, the themes of this show is we break down uh, the mystiques and the fallacies uh, that you get on CSI TV shows and cop shows. And, uh, you know, if you, if you look at uh, uh, the police shows that are, you know, not the actual documentary type shows, uh, basically when the officers, uh, you know, make the arrest, that's pretty much the end of the show, sans commercials. Well, wait a minute, you know, Bob, what you're saying and, and what, you know, we both know and those of us in the industry that, that are investigators, hey, that's just the beginning. You know, probable cause is, is a much lower standard than the ultimate, you know, uh, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And so, as you said, yeah, we can go out, we can get uh, PC to make the write the search warrant and PC to make the arrest, but that's just where everything begins. That's correct. And that's that's where the work really happens, because the prosecutor is going to look at this and, uh, you know, they'll usually give you a list. What about this? What about that? Did you talk to this person? Did you check this lead? And unlike what you see on television, a lot of this is mundane, uh, interviewing, looking up paperwork, getting records, uh, writing reports. We spend hours and hours writing reports. You never see that on TV. But this is the majority of your job. And it's not, you know, it's not what you see in that hour where everything's uh, action packed. It's it's a lot of routine work, but that's what we need to make a uh, to get a conviction. You know, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, uh, today is a great example of of this type of work. You know, some of it is tedious, but some of it is, you know, just concentrated doing the same thing over and over and over again uh, and working on a uh, today I'm working on an officer in, in, involved shooting fatality and I am uh, of course I've read all of the the reports and everything like that but I've got body cam and dash cam video and uh, part of the things in my wheelhouse as an expert is the interpretation analysis of uh, forensically recorded media. And I am enhancing it. I am going it over frame by frame. I'm doing timestamps. I'm listening to the audio feed. I'm watching the video feed. And what I'm trying to do is reconcile all the statements of the involved parties, uh, you know, the percipient witnesses, uh, the involved officers, the shooting officer, and I've got a dead guy. And uh, the agency is being sued. And I am, uh, in this particular case, uh, I am retained by the plaintiffs in this case. And, uh, and Bob, you know, and, and just for full disclosure, uh, experts don't represent, they're not attorneys, so we don't represent uh, 
entities or people. We represent the forensic facts and evidence as best that we can determine by review of preponderance of evidence. I think some experts give us a, uh, a bad rep, but we are about uh, the real deal. And uh, so I'm looking at all of this stuff, trying to reconstruct the crime scene because all of the evidence is gone, and I don't uh, make credibility determinations. None of us are allowed to by the federal rules of evidence. And so I am merely trying to uh, isolate those uh, important timestamps on the video and audio to see if they reconcile and or support what the different involved parties are saying, which are often uh, in conflict with each other. Correct? That's not only correct. A lot of times, as you know, we'll look at a case and, and after reviewing it, we'll go back to the uh, attorneys and say, sorry, we can't represent you. Uh, our, our duty is to the truth. That's right. And, and that's what we try to do. Yeah. And so we look at the truth. We look at we put it together and we go back. We can go back to the attorney, whether it's for an agency or for a plaintiff and say, I'm sorry, but uh, I, I cannot in good faith uh, represent you on this because I don't you're not going to like what I have to say for one thing. Okay. It's not going to, it's not going to agree with your, uh, the outcome you want. And, and we'll just say, go hire somebody else or, uh, you know, whatever you want to do, but we're not going to, we're not going to get involved. No. And, and that's the, that's the nice thing about what I really in, enjoy working with team members like yourself and our forensic death investigations team. We are the real deal. We like to refer to ourselves as the untouchables. We simply, there is no amount of money that is going to change our opinion. And I always tell attorneys, no matter what side I'm working on, hopefully you're like me. You only like surprises twice a year, Christmas and your birthday. You know, you don't want uh, <laughs> your expert coming out of left field with a, an opinion uh, that, that you don't like. And that's why we say, look, uh, you know, hopefully you're going to be mature about this and you're going to thank us for, for giving, even though we're giving you bad news, unfortunately, but uh, you're going to thank us because we saved you from, you know, spending a lot more money on your case and a lot more time and effort. Hey, Bob, when we come back from this break, I'd like to talk more about uh, uh, one or two more of our investigations. I'd like you to meet Dr. Bev, psychotherapist, grandmother, podcast, and talk radio host of Emotions Are Us on America Out Loud. You've seen a lot in your years in private practice. What is the one obstacle that people fear the most? Asking for help in the midst of a crisis. Having the courage to call a professor when they don't know what to do, how to do. Dr. Bev, we've seen a rise in street violence in cities everywhere around the world. What can we do to change this trajectory to keep our family and loved ones safe? Make time to talk, make time to encourage each other, and listen. Listen. Don't judge. Listen. Yeah, well said. Sometimes we don't do enough listening. Speaking of which, when we say on America Out Loud, let the silent voices be heard, how can we turn the tide of ignorance in the world today. Stop listening to the fake news. Think for yourself. Actions, actions speak louder than words. Follow the connected dots. If it acts like a duck, walk like a duck, it is a duck. Well, with all the fake news and bad information out there, we call ourselves the alternative news choice. 
America Out Loud. Welcome to the new era in communications. Tired of watching the same old, same old sporting events? Well, kick it up a notch and get ready, America, for something you've never seen before. It's the new generation of Western superstars. Shorty Gorham's American Freestyle Bullfighting. The newest, most extreme, premier Western sporting events. Shorty Gorham's American Freestyle Bullfighting pits one freestyle bullfighter against a Spanish fighting bull in a matchup best described as the most dangerous dance on dirt. Who will win? The acrobatic, tough-as-nails Western superstar or the mean? half-ton fighting bulls on earth the future of extreme sports this is not the bullfighting that you remember this is one of the most extreme sports you'll ever see in an arena this is hand-to-horn combat on a level playing field for more information and schedule of events go to shortygoramafb.com or find them on facebook that's shortygoramafb.com or find them on facebook it's bullfighting time I'd like to talk about a recent case where we were representing uh, the city and we looked at the investigation and uh, we felt that they did a good job, um, did good interviews, did good investigation, handled the evidence correctly, except for one problem we came across, and I just wanted to point this out to the uh, listeners. Uh, in this country, we have a uh, law called Brady, and Brady talks about uh, ha- handling evidence. Uh, specifically exculpatory evidence. Anything that can possibly be exculpatory, which means something that might tend to prove the defendant didn't commit the crime or is innocent of the crime, um, has to be disclosed. And in this particular case, we had a uh, detective that did, I thought, a good job. And what they had done was they had uh, uh, audiotaped some phone conversations uh, in a prison. And after about a couple of weeks, the officer went and gathered the audio tapes up and reviewed them and found nothing in there of any evidentiary value. And instead of writing a report to the prosecutor saying what he had found or not found, he just put the tapes back in evidence and didn't say anything to anybody. And, and uh, it was later discovered in the civil rights part of this uh, case that uh, this stuff was withheld. Well, yes, it was withheld but it was withheld for the reason that the officer didn't think that there was any value to the evidence on the tapes. The, the officer doesn't get to make that determination. Anything that's, uh, any evidence that's found needs to be disclosed. It's a disclosure law and that's covered in Brady. So I just wanted to point out that you know, officers have a duty to make sure that anything they find has to be disclosed and the other side is entitled to have that information. And you know, let me chime in for a second uh, because it's not only the officers that are required by the Brady case law to reveal uh, any evidence that might prove to be exculpatory, but prosecutors are also mandated to do that. And uh, in my uh, book, The uh, Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, which is available on Amazon, my first chapter is about the the famous uh, Trayvon Martin George Zimmerman uh, self-defense homicide investigation and subsequent trial because they prosecuted uh, Mr. Zimmerman for shooting and killing Trayvon Martin and the prosecution held back a lot of information 
that uh, that was, in my professional opinion, was exculpatory to uh, Mr. Zimmerman. So that's really an important thing to remember. We are always obligated as investigators and as prosecutors in our search for the truth to release all the information that we have uh, for uh, review. Uh, the next thing that I wanted to bring up is that for those people that don't understand the prison system or a jail system and rules with regards to search and seizure, once a person is in custody, they have no right to privacy. So back of the patrol car, no right to privacy. Inside a jail cell, no right to privacy. In a prison, no right to privacy. And when people in jails and in prison make telephone calls, those calls for security reasons are monitored and recorded. The only type of recording that is not allowed is an inmate conversing with their legal counsel because that is a guaranteed civil right protection. Correct. The, uh, the last case I want to talk about today, Ron, is a, a case I had in a northern state, um, small county. This involved a, a jail death, and we're seeing a lot of jail death cases now. And for various reasons, uh, we seem to have a, an epidemic of these. And this particular case was a, a young man who was brought in. He was intoxicated. He was brought into the jail. This is a small county. Everybody knows everybody. They knew who he was. And they, they brought him into the jail, and he was uh, acting up. He was resisting, and, and uh, they were having a problem with him. And the, the kid's mother brought in his uh, prescription pills uh, to the jail so they'd have them. And the now inmate uh, young man talked to the deputy and, and said, Deputy, if you put me in this other cell over here, I promise I'll behave. And uh, also, if you can give me a couple of my uh, Valium pills, I, I guarantee you I'll calm down and I won't cause any problems. Well, uh, most people know that mixing Valium with alcohol is not a real good combination to do. So he was put in the other cell, and the officer uh, got the pills from the mother, gave him a couple of Valium pills, and a half hour later, this uh, young man committed suicide in the cell. So tragic, uh, and we looked at this case, and we looked at the policies and procedures of that county, and it didn't really cover anything that had to do with uh, handing out prescription medication to uh, inmates. It's usually most places you go to, they have nurses, they have uh, policies to do this type of thing. But this is a small little uh, jail. And uh, then we looked at the state laws uh, regarding how to do this. And we found that there was no state jail standards in this one state. In fact, it's the only state that we found in the whole country that doesn't have any written jail standards. That's just and yeah, this this was kind of disturbing. So we went back to the uh, to the county, looked at their policies and procedures, and they didn't help, they didn't have anything. So we, again, we looked at what this deputy did. This deputy is trying to act in good faith to keep this guy calm down. So, you know, maybe so he'll go to sleep, sleep it off, he'll be fine. But he didn't know. He probably never been trained in in this type of thing, mixing Valium with uh, alcohol. And tragically, it, it had a, a real bad ending. But uh, if you look at the overall case and you say, why can't they, first of all, why can't the state come up with some jail standards? It's not that hard to do. You can 
you know, borrow the basics of it from another state and, and write them. And then why did the county neglect uh, this entire thing? What I found in doing my research was there was a state law in their administrative codes that said only a doctor can prescribe medication to a jail inmate, and it has to and it has to come through a doctor to the jail and administered that way. And they had a whole procedure on it, but it's not something a police officer or a sheriff or anybody in law enforcement, they wouldn't go to those sections to even look there because it's a state administrative code instead of a jail code. Right. And I think that's so important uh, that our listeners understand that. You know, law enforcement uh, throughout the United States is certainly not consistent. Uh, every state is different. And with regards to their, uh, their protocols and what we call codified standards of care and training, and even within uh, every state and their various counties, uh, the, the protocols, the, the policies, the, you know, the, are completely different. So, Bob, as we, as we bring this hour with you and I to a close, uh, I would just like to thank you so much uh, for coming and visiting us today. Uh, I think it's extremely important that our listeners and our forensic team members uh, understand what a homicide expert does and how they fit into the scheme uh, of a forensic death investigations team in our search for the truth. I also want to remind the listeners and our team members that you can easily reach out to me uh, by email with your questions, comments, and uh, your ideas for future shows and what you thought about this show at drron at America Out Loud. That's D-R-R-O-N at America Out Loud. And that brings this show to a close. Bob, will you come back and uh, spin a few more yarns? Absolutely, Ron. Thanks for having me. And, and for the law enforcement listeners out there, think in terms of risk management because that's what we're doing. Great. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and homicide expert and forensic investigator Bob Prevo on A Threat of Evidence on America Out Loud.